0: There were two taxidermists who stopped by a store uh, window one day, and they looked in the window, and they saw perched on display a beautiful owl. But they started to pick that owl apart. They immediately began to criticize the way it was mounted. Its eyes were not natural. Its wings were not in proportion with its head. Its feathers were not neatly arranged, and its feet could be improved. They thought it was a terrible job that that taxidermist had done. Well, after they'd finished their criticism, the old owl turned its head and gave them a little wink. (laughs) They picked it apart and it wasn't even dead yet. (laughs) Well, this morning we continue our study of the life of Paul. We're going to learn from him something that all of us need to know. We're going to learn from the Apostle Paul how to handle criticism, amen? How to handle criticism. Now, by a show of hands, who here who's watching this broadcast has a PhD in handling criticism? Anyone? Just go ahead and raise your hand. Anyone have a PhD in handling criticism? No one? Okay, let's back it off. How about a master's degree in handling criticism? Anyone? A bachelor's degree? Okay, high school diploma. Who has at least a high school diploma on handling criticism? I don't know about you, but some days uh, people would look at how I handle criticism, and they might think I hadn't even graduated from kindergarten. We struggle, don't we, with handling criticism, especially when that criticism is negative and from someone who we're not so crazy about. When we left off last week, the Apostle Paul had been taken by military escort from Jerusalem to Caesarea, uh, command, uh, yeah, to the city of uh, Caesarea. Commander Lysias had ordered a, a nighttime a military escort for Paul uh, after learning that a group of more than 40 Jews was staging an ambush the following day. So they were planning to kill Paul in cold blood on the streets of Jerusalem, but when Commander Lysias found out about that, Remember, he got together 470 troops. Seventy of those were on horseback, including Paul himself. And they escorted him through the night there to the city of Caesarea. Well, the assassin's plot had been foiled. Paul was escorted safely to that capital of Judea, Caesarea. And Governor Felix was there to hear his case once Paul's accusers arrived. And that's where we pick up today in verse 1 of Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24 beginning in verse 1. So, please follow along with me. 5 days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. Uh, We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation, everywhere, and in in every way, most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude, but in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, uh, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By by examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. Well, the Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Well, may God bless us as we study his word today. Well, traveling from Jerusalem to Caesarea was like traveling from Victorville to Corona. It was a downhill trip of about 60 miles. And so on horseback with a military escort, Paul had been able to get there in two days. In all likelihood, the high priest, along with his cronies, probably would have taken them three days. So it's not surprising that Paul's accusers didn't show up until he'd been there for about five days. Interestingly, the Jewish high priest Ananias didn't send his minions to do the bidding for him. He actually went himself. He made the journey himself, and that only reveals how serious of a threat he considered Paul to be. I think it also reveals uh, that uh, for him, this charge against Paul was personal. A week earlier, remember, Paul had stood before the Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem, and he had criticized the high priest in front of all the high priest cronies, in front of the whole Sanhedrin. Remember, in Acts 23, verse 3, Paul had shouted to Ananias, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Well, not so surprisingly... The high priest didn't like that eruption in his proceedings very much. He didn't like that criticism. And so in front of all of his cronies, he had been embarrassed. He had been called out. And so he seems to have had a personal vendetta against Paul, and he wanted himself to be there when he was being formally charged there in Caesarea before the governor. Well, as I mentioned to you, I believe it was last week we talked about this, uh, this high priest, Ananias, was one of the worst high priests, high priests in Jewish history. Uh, he was dishonest. He was corrupt. He stole money from other priests. He wasn't above uh, harboring bitterness or holding a grudge. And so it seems pretty clear to me that he was harboring a grudge and nursing, uh, you know, these, this resentment and, and bitterness against Paul here. Well, Luke tells us in verse 1 that the high priest didn't come alone. He brought with him some of the Jewish elders from the Sanhedrin and a lawyer named Tertullus. I think I called him Tertullus earlier. Probably a better pronunciation is Tertullus, not Tertullus, but you know what? Uh, If the preacher messes up these names, you don't have to feel bad when you don't know how to pronounce them either. Amen? All right, so I will try to remember to pronounce it a little bit more faithfully to the original Tertullus, and so the Greek word used here describes Tertullus, it's translated in most English translations as a lawyer, but that Greek word can also be translated as orator. So Tertullus was known to be a very eloquent orator who would be able to present the most convincing case against Paul. He knew all the ins and outs of the Roman judicial system, and he was really good with words including all of the proper courtroom jargon. Verse 2, after Paul's accusers arrive, Paul is summoned and Tertullus presents their case before the esteemed Governor Felix. In verses 2 through 4, Tertullus begins his opening statement with a captatio benevolentiae. Well, what on earth is a captatio benevonetishe? Well, it's an endeavor to capture the judge's good will. When presenting a case before a Roman leader, it was customary to butter him up a little bit before you presented your case. And that's what Tertullus is doing here in verses 2 through 4. But he doesn't just... Uh, put the standard amount of butter on that uh, governing official that he's speaking to, he really goes over the top here. Uh, He says there in those three verses, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. And your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this with profound Gratitude. Well, if there were any people in the gallery that day, I imagine some were making the gagging motion as they were listening to him lather on the butter, and he's just so over the top here. Maybe some other guys under their breath were going, Yeah, my foot, bringing peace to this nation. The exact opposite. You see, anyone in that room, including the governor himself, they knew this guy was not speaking honestly. Uh, no one, even if they were embellishing the truth uh, just a little bit, would have come to the conclusions that Tertullus, excuse me, Tertullus, comes to here. And so, uh, for one thing, uh, for the Jewish people, didn't enjoy a long period of peace under Governor Felix. You know, historically, what happened right after he took that governorship, right when he came to power, within a very short time, he hired some thugs to murder the Jewish high priest named Jonathan. He hadn't been in office very long. He murders their high priest. And over the five years that followed that, he had hunted down Jewish zealots like dogs and he crucified many of them, more than could be counted, across Israel And that's one of the reasons that two years after this hearing with Paul, the Roman emperor plucked him out of that governor position and fired him because it became well known that he wasn't keeping the peace, he wasn't just, he wasn't carrying out Roman law faithfully, he was corrupt. And he was a terrible leader. Everything Tertullus says in his Captatio Benevolente is not just embellished, it's a bold-faced lie. Governor Felix hadn't ushered in peace. He had neither foresight nor positive reforms, and the Jewish nation had no gratitude for him, let alone profound gratitude. Well, everyone in the room that day, including Governor Felix, knew Tertullus was lying through his teeth. But Governor Felix rather enjoyed a good lathering of butter. So he listened with delight. In verses 5 and 6, Tertullus presents the Jewish leader's case against Paul. Tertullus levels three charges against Paul. Number one, it's a personal charge. He's a troublemaker. He points that out in verse verse 5. Number two, uh, it's a political charge. Uh, Paul's the ringleader of an illegal cult. And then finally, the third charge we find in verse 6, it's a religious charge. He tried to desecrate the temple Paul did. He tried to desecrate the Jewish temple. Let's take a, a brief look at each of these three charges. Because each of them in this courtroom were quite serious. Charge number one, Paul is a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Well, Tertullus was basically accusing Paul of being an insurrectionist, fanning the flames of Jewish uprising throughout the Roman Empire. So was Paul stirring up riots across the Roman Empire? Eh, not really. But when Paul was in town, It was very common for the Jews to riot. So there was a correlation between Paul being in town, the message of Jesus Christ that he preached, and a riot riot forming soon thereafter. It's very true that riots tended to form wherever Paul went, not because he was starting them or instigating them, just because the Jews reacted so negatively to his ministry. Well, I like how author and evangelist uh, Vance Havner uh, famously said it this way. He said, Whenever Paul, or excuse me, wherever Paul went, there was either a riot or a revival. (laughs) That's pretty true, isn't it? Most cities Paul went to, there was either a riot or a revival, depending on how people responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, the second charge that uh, Tertullus levels against Paul in front of Governor Felix is that he's spearheading an illegal cult. This was a political charge. Every person in the courtroom knew that Rome didn't authorize any and every religion in the Roman Empire. Religions had to be approved by the emperor. They had to be approved by Rome. So Tertullus is trying to make the case that Paul is the commander of an illegal fringe sect that is encouraging people to defy the authority of Rome. Finally, the third charge, this is a religious charge, and at first glance it may not make sense to us that this charge would be leveled against Paul outside of Jerusalem in a Roman courtroom. It doesn't seem to make sense. Why would this guy, Governor Felix, care about desecrating the temple? Well, in fact, he would be very concerned about that because uh, Tertullus, uh, Tertullus understood that Governor Felix and before him Governor Pilate and the emperor, Emperor Nero, all the high level Roman officials understood that the Jewish nationalists were a powder keg ready to explode. And so whether it was Pilate or whether it was Governor Felix or Governor Festus after him or the emperors of Rome, uh, those guys were always on guard making sure that they kept the Jews intact, that they kept the Jews somewhat pacified so there wouldn't be this huge uprising. And so the Jewish, or I should say the Roman leaders, were very, very concerned with anyone charged with desecrating the temple because nothing could light the fuse underneath the powder keg of Judaism any faster than someone coming in and desecrating their holy temple. And so these charges, these three criticisms that Paul's accusers leveled against him were all serious. Well, before moving on to Paul's defense, beginning in verse 10, I want to share with you something really insightful that Pastor Chuck Swindoll points out in his book, Paul, a man of grace and grit. Chuck Swindoll writes, and I want you to see if what he says about criticism rings true in your own experience. He points out four flaws of negative criticism. Uh, Number one, criticism comes when we least need it. Does that ring true in your own life? Uh, there's rarely a time when someone criticizes you and you think, you know what, this is the perfect day for it. I really needed to be criticized today. Most of the time when it comes, we don't feel like we need it. Number two, criticism comes when we least deserve it. That's true, isn't it? Oftentimes when people criticize us, we feel like, you know, we're doing a pretty good job at what we're doing right now. Why are they criticizing me now? Number three, criticism comes from people who are least qualified to give it. Can I hear an amen to that? So often people who criticize us are the last ones who should be criticizing anyone because they're goofing up worse than we are. And then finally, number four, criticism frequently comes in a form that is least helpful to us. It seems like people who are our most vocal critics oftentimes are the worst at criticizing. You know, their timing is terrible, their delivery is terrible, uh, their motive is terrible, and so, so often, we find all four of these are true. Criticism comes when we least need it, it comes when we least deserve it. It comes from people who are least qualified to give it, and criticism frequently comes in a form that isn't helpful to us. And so, these flaws certainly rang true in Paul's experience. He didn't need any more criticism. He didn't deserve any more criticism. The people who criticized him really weren't qualified to criticize him. Think about it. The high priest and his cronies, they weren't firsthand witnesses to what Paul had supposedly done in Ephesus and Corinth and Lystra and these cities around the Roman Empire. They didn't see that. They weren't witnesses of that. The criticism leveled against him by Tertullus was not helpful. It was full of half-truths and speculation. So what was Paul to do? How was he going to respond to these false accusations and this negative criticism? Well, make sure you've got your listening ears on and your thinking caps on because the way Paul handles the negative criticism is absolutely brilliant. Look at how Paul responds beginning in verse 10 of Acts 24. When the governor nodded or motioned for Paul to speak, Paul replied, "I know that for a number of years you have been a judge near this uh, judge over this nation. So I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than twelve days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However," I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are, or those, uh, or these who are here should uh, state what crime they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing. I shouted as I stood in their presence, It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul uh, discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid, and he said, "Uh, That's enough for now. Uh, You may leave. When when I find it convenient, I, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Well, Paul responded to the negative criticism masterfully. And from his response, we can glean seven practical guidelines for handling criticism in a godly Christ-like way. But before I point out those seven guidelines, I I think it's important that we all understand something very important about responding to criticism, and it's this. We shouldn't always respond to criticism. Can I get an amen to that? For some of you, that's a breath of fresh air. We don't always need to respond to criticism. A great example of this, I think, is found in Proverbs 17, verses 27 and 28. Uh, The Proverbs uh, are written there. A man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even-tempered. Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent, and discerning if he holds his tongue. The writer of the Proverbs is telling us, you know what, there are times when you need to keep your mouth shut. There's times that you don't respond. There's times when it's wise not to defend yourself. Sometimes the best response to criticism is no response at all. And it should go without saying, I'm not talking about being passive aggressive. Uh, Using your silent treatment as a weapon. Ladies, those of you who are wives, sometimes you use your silent treatment as a weapon, right? Men, those of you who are husbands, sometimes you walk out of the room in the middle of the discussion, you use your silent treatment as a weapon, right? Paul is... Not advocating, God's word is not advocating that we use silence as a weapon, as a means of being passive aggressive. But if you are in a position of leadership where you have criticism coming at you from all sides, it will sap your time and, your, and it will absolutely drive you crazy if you try to respond to every bit of criticism that comes your way. During the Civil War, an Army officer asked President Lincoln if he could respond to this certain group that was criticizing his decision-making during the war. This, this group was called the Committee on the Conduct of the War. And here's how Lincoln respond, responded to his military officer who wanted him to answer this criticism. Lincoln said, if I were to try to read, much less answer, all the attacks made on me, This shop might as well be closed for any other business. I do the very best I know how, the very best I can, and I mean to keep doing so until the end. If the end brings me out all right, what is said against me won't amount to anything. If the end brings me out wrong, ten angels swearing I was right would make no difference. That's really well said, isn't it? Those are some wise words. In fact, those words were so wise, the great World War II British leader, Winston Churchill, had this quote of Abraham Lincoln's hanging on his office wall. He had to remind himself, don't always respond to every bit of criticism. Just do your very best and listen to the voices and the criticism that matter most. Well, several years ago, a pastor friend of mine was getting a bunch of written complaints on their Uh, communication cards on Sunday mornings. And sometimes those complaints would come in from people who had been in church that morning, and those complaints were anonymous. And so finally it got to a point where he went to his staff and said, you know, effective immediately, whenever a complaint comes in that's anonymous, throw it in the trash, don't even read it. If that person doesn't even bother to put their name on that complaint, then it's not worth our time. Throw it away. I can understand where he's coming from. Makes sense. Chuck Swindoll writes, people in ministry are like lightning rods. Every pastor, every Christian leader, every Christian musician, every Christian author. So if you are in a position of leadership where you have criticism coming at you from all directions, you simply can't respond to all of it. You shouldn't even try to respond to all of it. With God's guidance, You have to carefully choose which criticism you respond to. And when you do respond, this is how you should do it. Let's take a look at Paul's seven guidelines for responding to negative criticism. Paul's first guideline can be found in verse 10. Here it is. Guideline number one. Refuse to be caught up in the emotion of the criticism. Refuse to let your emotions take the lead. When someone criticizes you, especially someone who tends to get on your last nerve, how do you normally respond? Do you normally respond more like Dr. Spock from Star Trek, very logically and calmly and rationally? Or do you respond, uh, oh, I don't know, more like the Incredible Hulk? Hulk smash! Well, for many of us, it's more like a Hulk smash, isn't it? You know, someone criticizes us, especially someone that gets on our last nerve. Man, we respond with raw emotion. We throw rationality and logic and calmness out the window. Well, notice how calmly Paul responds in his defense beginning in verse 10. He's just had some pretty serious accusations leveled against him from this high priest crony. And that high priest, remember one of the most wicked high priests in Jewish history, he had no business criticizing anyone. He needed to look in the mirror and pull that plank out of his own eye. He had planks in both eyes. And so Paul could have gotten upset, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't lash out with some emotional frenzy. He very calmly begins to, His reply, he very calmly begins his defense in verse 10. He gives his captatio benevolentiae and he doesn't appear the least bit angry or bitter. He's not on the verge of blowing his top. He isn't lashing out. He doesn't respond to Tertullus's harsh criticism of him by leveling harsh criticism against Tertullus. Even though the negative criticism was unfair, even though the criticism was untrue, even though it was hurtful, Paul refuses to get caught up in the emotion of it. You know, we would be wise to follow Paul's wonderful example. Guideline number two, stick to the facts. Stick to the facts. We find Paul doing this in verses 11 through 13. Paul calmly and logically presents the facts he shares with the governor himself could easily verify. He points out that the charges against him can't be proven. In a court of law, Tertullus's charge, well, each of those charges, they were just hearsay. Their entire legal team didn't contain a single eyewitness. They were accusing Paul of all this stuff that none of them had seen with their own eyes. None had heard with their own ears. So unlike Paul's accusers, when responding to criticism, stick with the facts. It'll serve you well. Stick with the facts. Guideline number three. If we want to respond to criticism, especially negative criticism, in a godly and Christ-like way, tell the truth with a clear conscience. We find that in verse 16. Tell the truth with a clear conscience. Paul mentions in verse 16 is. Efforts to keep a clear conscience before both God and man. And I think that's significant. He wasn't one of those religious snobs that says, I can ignore all human law because I only pay attention to God's law. Well, part of God's law is to pay attention to human law, as long as human law doesn't defy God's law. And most of the time it doesn't. On the other hand, Paul didn't just do everything that was right by man, but wrong by God. To the best of his ability, he did in good conscience what was right by both God and man. So, to the best of your ability, try to do what is right by both God and man. Keep a clear conscience before both God and man. And you can only do that if you speak the truth. You've got to speak the truth. You can't do it if you're peddling half-truths and embellishments. When you're under attack... You may not think speaking the truth will pay off in the end, but it will. The truth will set you free. Guideline number four. As we respond to criticism, we need to identify the original source of the criticism. Once again, identify the original source of the criticism. We find Paul doing this in verse 19. Now, why was Paul on trial in Caesarea? You remember how this all started? Back in Jerusalem, he's minding his own business, helping those Jewish men finish up their Nazarite vows there at the temple. He's not causing any ruckus, not causing any trouble. But there, there were these troublemaker Jews from the province of Asia who recognized Paul and started fabricating these charges about him bringing Gentiles into the courts of the temple and defiling and desecrating the temple. Those Jews from the province of Asia were the troublemakers. They were the one ones who started all of this. So we ask the question, uh, where were they? Why weren't they here in this courtroom in Caesarea among the high priest and the other Jews charging Paul with these crimes? Where were they? Well, they were back in Jerusalem stuffing their faces after their little, we won't eat until Paul is dead, packed had fallen flat on its face. Well, they were stuffing their faces. Why didn't they travel those 60 miles to make their case before Governor Felix? Anybody's guess. But it's not uncommon, is it? Those who are the witnesses, supposedly, those who initiate the charges, oftentimes don't have the guts to follow up those charges when it really counts. Well, this fourth guideline is important to remember. Every once in a while, someone will come up to you and accuse you of something. Uh, Maybe they come up and say, "Uh, Why did you yell at that lady at Winco last week? And you respond with a, Huh? (laughs) Well, I heard uh, that you were in Winco last week and you yelled at some lady in Winco. Really? Uh Who did you hear that from? Well, it's not important, but I heard that you were in Winco and you yelled at some lady. Okay, well, let me get this straight. So you believe that I yelled at a lady in Winco last week, even though you were not in Winco to see me or hear me yell at this lady in Winco, and you believe this because some anonymous person told you that I was in WinCo last week yelling at some lady. Do I have that right? Well, let me just be the first to say, I would love for that person to come and tell me that face-to-face. But if they're not willing to do that, let me just be honest with you. I wasn't even in WinCo last week. (laughs) You get the point, don't you? Sometimes we have these charges, these accusations, these criticisms leveled against us, and they're not even grounded in reality. And the person who started that vicious rumor isn't even there to make that charge him or herself. Chuck Swindoll confesses, I have rarely been hurt by the original source. My deepest wounds have been inflicted by second or even third-hand sources. Isn't that sad? His greatest wounds not inflicted by the person that started that rumor, that began that accusation, but by second or third-hand sources. One of my Bible college professors used to say, it's not what I said that gets me into trouble. It's what some darn fool says I said that gets me into trouble. That rings true with a lot of us, doesn't it? It's not what I said that gets me into trouble. It's what some darn fool said I said that gets me into trouble. It's important to identify the source of the criticism. Is it coming from a reputable source who is presenting firsthand knowledge or is it from a gossip who's simply peddling hearsay? Guideline number four in dealing with negative criticism. Don't surrender. Don't quit. We find this in verse 27. We learn in that verse that Paul was in the slammer for two years. Waiting for an official trial, waiting for his inevitable acquittal. We learn in verse 26 that Governor Felix was hoping Paul would offer him a bribe for his release. And the only reason he was kept incarcerated was because Governor Felix, after being such an idiot himself and slaughtering hundreds, if not thousands, of Jews, wanted to do the Jews a favor by keeping Paul incarcerated. What a jerk! It's pretty clear that Governor Felix was just wanting a bribe so that he could go ahead and release Paul. It's pretty clear he either wanted to do the Jews a favor or pat his own wallet. It's pretty clear that at just about any time during his two-year incarceration, Paul could have thrown in the towel and cried, Uncle, I'm done. I'm through. Here is your stinking bribe money. Let me out of here. But Paul didn't do that, did he? He wasn't going to take the easy way out. And he certainly wasn't going to deny his Savior and Lord. So there in jail, he sat for over two years. We would do well to follow his example. Never surrender. Never compromise your integrity. Never stop standing for Jesus Christ. Never quit. Guideline number six as we're dealing with criticism, don't become impatient or grow bitter. Don't become impatient or grow bitter. There's no indication in chapters 24 or chapter 25 that Paul grew impatient or bitter. He was a man who lived out what he would one day write in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. He was careful how he lived. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because he knew the days were evil. As Dr. Luke spent time with Paul during his imprisonment, It was at that time that he likely interviewed eyewitnesses and began to gather together the research necessary to write the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. In all likelihood, Luke did much of the preparation for writing those two books right here during the two years when he was with Paul there in Caesarea. Isn't that a glorious thing? Luke would have been just 60 miles from Jerusalem so he could freely go back and forth and interview eyewitnesses who were still alive who had walked with Jesus Christ. What a glorious thing. God truly does work all things together for good. So like Paul, we shouldn't become impatient or grow bitter because Paul ultimately knew in his heart that God was working for the good and we should know the same in our hearts as well. Finally, Guideline number seven in dealing with harsh criticism: stand on the promises of God. Stand on the promises of God. Remember what God had said, what Jesus Christ specifically had said to uh, said to Paul back in Acts twenty-three, verse eleven. Back in Acts twenty-three, eleven, there at night Jesus had appeared to uh, to Paul in a vision, and he said, "Take courage." As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Because Paul knew without a doubt that God's promises are as good as gold. He didn't need to be anxious or worried. God had promised him that he'd make it to Rome. So no matter how long and how drawn out his incarceration in Caesarea was, Paul knew sooner or later he was going to make it to Rome where he could tell people there about Jesus Christ. He knew it was going to happen. God hadn't given him a timeline, but it was guaranteed to happen because God had promised it. And once again, his word is as good as gold. We talk about this often here at Impact. When times get really tough in our lives, we need to cling to God's promises. We need to remember God's promises. When we're discouraged or depressed, we need to remember God's promises When we feel tired or overworked, we need to hold on to God's promises. Uh, When we uh, feel like uh, the task we're facing is too big for us, we need to hold on to God's promises. And when we feel rejected and alone, we need to hold on to God's promises. We hold on to God's promises through all of these situations, and we hold on to them when we are under attack or being severely criticized. We need to hold on to the promises of God. You see, Paul was able to endure some of the harshest criticism imaginable as he stood firmly on the promises of God. He stood on the promises of God, and so should you and I. At the times we are criticized, at the time those attacks are leveled against us, we can count on the promises of God being fulfilled each and every time. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, thanking you for your promises from your word. Your promises are good, and they come true every single time. Lord, help us to obediently carry out these guidelines when we are being harshly criticized. Help us, Lord, to keep our emotions in check on the heels of that criticism Help us, Lord, to stick to the facts. Help us to speak the truth with a clear conscience before God and man. Help us to identify the source of the criticism wisely. Help us, like Paul, to never surrender or quit, even though the criticism sometimes is overwhelming. Help us to not be impatient or or grow bitter in the midst of that criticism. And, Lord, help us to stand firmly on the promises of God. Lord, we want to handle the inevitable criticism that comes our way, just like one of these champions of our faith, the apostle Paul. Lord, help us to handle criticism like he handled it for the glory of God and the advancement of your kingdom, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm so glad that uh, you were with me for this message today. So practical, practical tips we dealing with criticism that's going to come our way. And I need to go back and revisit these in the days to come. I hope that you will do the same. And if you need to go back and, and re-watch part of this broadcast to be able to jot down those seven guidelines, I encourage you to do so. I think we posted on Facebook as well uh, the message notes for today so you can get those a little easier if you're able to get a hold of those message notes. But we're so glad that you are here today. And we never want a service to end without giving you an opportunity to get right with God if you've never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, if you're not sure if you died tonight that you would go to heaven, I want to encourage you to A, admit that you are a sinner and need Jesus. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and he's your your only hope to be forgiven and to make it to heaven. And C, choose to begin following Jesus Christ, not just as your Savior, but as your Lord today. Lord meaning your master, your boss, your jefe, the one who calls the shots, the one who takes the wheel of your life. If you're ready to put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat, then I encourage you to make that decision right now. Put him in the driver's seat. Go to him in prayer, asking him to come into your life and make you brand new and help you to follow him from this point forward. And if you've made that decision and you're serious about that decision, then you'll be baptized as soon as possible. Because Jesus commands us to be baptized if we're serious about believing in him and repenting of our sin and putting him in charge. Reach out to us. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you today. You can reach us by phone at 760-246-4100. Or you can simply email us at info at greaterimpact.cc. And if you're a regular attender who is a believer in Jesus Christ and you just need some prayer, you can reach out to us as well today. We'd be happy to pray with you and talk with you. God bless you as you walk in obedience to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Handle criticism this week like a champ. Handle criticism like the Apostle Paul. God bless you.